Africa rise and shine Africa zoza Africa amka na unai Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. And I am Lulu Gabu driving the show with Wisani Makubele, Tabisoluhuku and Figile Lingwati. Top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour. The AU election observers begin work in Zimbabwe and fighting in Sudan's Darfur region displaces thousands of people. In economics, wage talks in South Africa's gold mining industry continue and in sports news, Cameroon's Chan qualifier against Gabon postponed again. But first, the news with Wisani Makubele. Thanks, Lulu. Good morning. Zimbabwe's Electoral Commission says it's happy with preparations for the upcoming general elections on July 31st. This, despite a spat between Zimbabwean coalition parties over election funding. Deputy Chair of the ZEC, Joyce Kazembe, says next Wednesday's voting will run smoothly. We are getting what we want and referring the creditors to the respective ministry. Rest assured that when you go today on the ground, you will find things in place that indicate and buttress our information that we are ready for the elections. We are deploying, as we say, the most important electoral material, which are the ballot papers. Come tomorrow, the last day of printing and delivery, all the papers by the 25th, the ballot papers, which were the challenge on the special vote, will have been deployed. At the same time, Zimbabwe's coalition parties continue to disagree over, over election funding for next Wednesday's poll. Zimbabwean Justice Minister Patrick Chinamasa from the ZANU-PF party says the Movement for Democratic Change-headed Treasury refuses to release funds for the $132 million polls. Chinamasa says Finance Minister Tendai Biti refuses to cooperate. Yes, the funds are there. Minister Beatty has throughout been singing the blues about lack of funding. You must understand where Minister Beatty is coming from. He did not want the resources for the electoral process to come or to be raised or to to be mobilized internally. He wanted the very people, countries, which impose sanctions. We said, as an PF, no, we will lose control as a country of our internal processes. But I wanted to assure you that uh, we have the money. The elections on the 31st will be held without fail. Finance Minister Tendai Biti has denied the claims. There is only one Minister of Finance and it's not, it's not Patrick Chinamas. He has frustrated our efforts to get money from the UN, notwithstanding the fact that the principal directed that we write to the UN. And no sooner had I gone to America for the spring meetings did he unilaterally issue a statement that he was going to arrest anyone from the UN was going to come to, to, to Zimbabwe. And to the extent that there will be life after the, there will be Zimbabwe on the 1st of August 2018, we have to balance. We can't kill the economy over an election that comes in one day. 
pressure is mounting on Egypt's new leaders to release Mohamed Morsi from detention after clashes between supporters and opponents of the deposed Islamist president left 13 people dead. The clashes broke out on Monday and raged into yesterday, leaving dozens wounded alongside the fatalities after Morsi's family vowed to sue the military over his outstar. Officials say nine people were killed early yesterday when opponents of Morsi attacked his supporters who staged a sit-in near Cairo University. Four other people died late on Monday, bringing the toll to 13 from 24 hours of clashes. Egypt's new leadership says Morsi is in a safe place for his own good. Civil rights activists are accusing Kenya's new government of using the police to crush dissent following the Criminal Investigation Department's interrogation of a political aide to Kenya's foremost opposition leader over an alleged plan to foster an insurrection. Rights lawyer Harun Dubi, who is representing Eliud Awalo, former Prime Minister Raila Odinga's campaign manager in the, in the March presidential election, says CID officers interviewed Owalo on Monday for allegations, amongst others, that he is plotting to initiate an Egyptian-style uprising. Duby says the allegations are baseless and that it's worrying how the police are allowing themselves to be used by the state. Police say they are non-partisan and are looking after the best interests of the country. The North Houting High Court in South Africa's capital, Pretoria, has postponed a class section by foreign nationals in which they claim intimidation and unlawful arrest until today. The applicants, led by the Somali Association of South Africa, on behalf of asylum seekers and refugees, are represented by lawyers for human rights and their affidavits. The foreign nationals claim they have been abused and discriminated against by organs of state, including the police, home affairs and labor. Lawyers for Human Rights spokesperson Anjul Mainstry says the application follows the police confiscation of goods and arrests of foreign traders in Limpopo province in July last year. The purpose of this application is, is firstly to stop this police operation that you've heard about in court from continuing to occur. We no longer want the police to be able to shut down and close businesses that are operated by asylum seekers and refugees. And to that end, we seek from the court a declaration that asylum seekers and refugees are entitled to self-employment. And that's all we had time for. Back to Lulu with Africa Rise and Shine. Africa Rise and Shine. Africa. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Wisani. In our top story, members of the African Union high-level election observer team began arriving in Harare yesterday ahead of the July 30. First, polls. Commissioner for Political Affairs Dr. Aisha Abdullahi arrived yesterday ahead of Chairperson of the Commission Dr. Nkosazana Zlaminizuma. Although the observation team has been inundated with reports of irregularities, the union will address the media tomorrow. The AU team comprises of 10 long-term observers who have been in Zimbabwe from June. Simon Muchemwa reports from Harare. Members of the high-level African Union teams have started arriving in Zimbabwe ahead of the July 31 elections. This follows the approval of the deployment of an African Union election observation mission by the chairperson of the commission, Her Excellence, Dr. Nkosazana Ndlamini Zuma. The African Union Commissioner for Political Affairs, Dr. Aisha Abdullahi, arrived Tuesday amid concerns that 
the team is too small for the task ahead. Dr. Abdullahi said the African Union team in Harare at the moment is professional. Um, we, we have our long-term observers that I told you, about 10 of them, then the long-term, about 60. So 70, uh, we've been doing this in many other countries. They are efficient and uh, they will be reporting from the field and uh, yeah, that would be adequate. Dr. Aisha Abdullahi, who is in Zimbabwe for the first time, arrived Tuesday ahead of the chairperson of the commission, Your Excellence, Dr. Nkosazana Lamini Zuma, and former Nigerian President Olusejon Obasanjo, who are expected to jet in later this week. In 2008, AU guaranteed an inclusive government that had been brokered by SADC following bloody and disputed polls earlier in the year. The agreement forced President Robert Mugabe to cede some of his powers to the opposition leader Morgan Changrai, leading to the formation of the coalition government in 2009. Key reforms that included a new constitution were supposed to be implemented as a roadmap to free and fair elections. Dr. Abdullahi said Zimbabwean elections are key to the union. Well, uh, Zimbabwe is an important member of the union and uh, we're very interested. We're happy to be here and we shall observe uh, the elections. Well, we'll be here until the elections are over. <laughs> Meanwhile, political parties in Zimbabwe have raised concerns that the July 31 polls might be a sham due to the failure by the election body to effectively conduct special voting two weeks ago. Thousands of uniformed forces were denied the chance to vote as ballot papers were distributed late. Names of some members of the uniformed forces were not on the voters' roll. The chaotic nature of the special voting prompted political parties and civic organizations to call for SADC and African Union to intervene. Dr. Abdullahi confirmed receipts of such complaints and promised to inform the nation of the outcome on Thursday. Well, they have been sending us reports. Uh, we shall share with you our pre-election statement on the 25th of July. So if we'll be patient, uh, yeah, we shall address that on the 25th of July, Thursday, coming, this coming Thursday. Meanwhile, Zimbabwean election body has given uniformed forces who could not vote a fortnight ago a reprieve. Joyce Kazembe, the deputy chairperson of Zimbabwe Electoral Commission, revealed Wiley's addressing the media and observers Tuesday at the command center in Harare. The commission is currently actually has been discussing with the political players, the political parties on the way forward. The commission itself would like to enable those that have the vote to actually not be disenfranchised because of the challenges of the commission itself. So the desire for the commission is to allow all those who are unable to exercise their right to vote to do so during the ordinary poll on the 31st of July 2013 whatever the law says. The law says if anybody received authorization and does not turn up to vote, that person will not be able to vote. 
on the ordinary polling day. However, if a person turns up and the EMB itself fails to deliver, it is not the problem of the person who has been given the vote. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. The African Union has extended the stay of its troops in the Republic of Sudan's troubled Darfur region for one year. The extension comes more than a week after seven Tanzanian peacekeepers were killed there by unknown gunmen. James Shimanyula reports. The situation remains tense and unpredictable in the Republic of the Sudan's Darfur state where seven African Union peacekeepers were killed more than a week ago by a non-gunman. Darfur is in the western part of the Republic of the Sudan. The state has been the epicenter of fighting between Khartoum troops and various rebel forces including justice and equality movement known by its acronym as GEM. United Nations has described the conflict in the restless state as the world's worst humanitarian crisis. Rebel groups fighting the government in Darfur accused the Khartoum government of suppressing, oppressing and neglecting the black people of Darfur. The killing of seven Tanzanian peacekeepers has angered the African Union which has asked the Republic of the Sudan President Omar Hassan Ahmed al-Bashir to take quick action to bring to book those responsible for their death. Here is African Union's Secretary General for Peace and Security Council Ademore Kambuzi. Council calls on the government of the Sudan to arrest and bring to justice the perpetrators of this heinous crime. Council also encourages UNAMID for its protection of civilians despite major challenges. Underscoring the importance of peace in Darfur, Kambuzi said security, justice, and reconciliation in Darfur remains a top priority for the AU. Recognizing that the people of Darfur simply should not wait any longer for a comprehensive resolution to the conflict. Asking the Khartoum government to move faster to resolve the Darfur conflict, Kambuzi had this to say. Council, bearing in mind that the Darfur crisis is a manifestation of broader political and social problems, urges the government of Sudan to pursue a holistic approach to address these challenges within the framework of the ongoing constitutional review process in an inclusive manner with the support of and coordination with the AU high-level implementation panel as may be required. As Cambodia spoke on the mandate of the African Union peacekeeping troops had just ended to ensure that the troops continue to stay there for another year, Cambodia made the following announcement. Council decided to extend for a further period of 12 months the mandate of UNAMID. Meanwhile, the African Union's mediation team led by former South African President Thabo Mbeki is expected to supervise talks on July 25th between the two Sudans over issues that have yet to be resolved since leaders of the two countries signed an agreement in Addis Ababa in September last year. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Meanwhile, the World Food Programme, WFP, says an 
Escalation of new violence in Sudan's western region of Darfur has prompted over 250,000 people to flee their villages and abandon their livelihoods since early this year. Although this was the season when people should be planting and working on farms, they were instead fleeing their villages. WFP spokesperson Elizabeth Byers tells UN Radio's Patrick Maigua in Geneva that with the recent displacement, the total number of people receiving assistance in Darfur is expected to rise to almost 4 million. She stresses that the agency has to raise $217 million to meet the needs of the displaced until the end of the year. WFP is deeply concerned with the developing situation in Darfur. There is a new violence in Darfur, and this has prompted more than 250,000 people to flee their villages. They have abandoned their livelihoods, their belongings. For over the last few months, some of them took refuge into the bush, which is very difficult to access, and they are in remote places. We are quite concerned with this new violence. Sudan remains one of the WFP's largest and most complex operation, and we provide food assistance to almost 4 million people, 3.9 million exactly, affected by the conflict. Have you been able to reach these 250,000 people who have newly been displaced with food assistance? WFP is doing its best to reach those people. We plan to reach in 2013 almost 4 million. People in Darfur who receive WFP food assistance include 1.4 million of people internally displaced and 1.3 million who receive seasonal support. Altogether, WFP is actually assisting 2.9 million people, including the newly displaced people. This newly displacement comes at a time when these people are supposed to be planting their new crops. Do you foresee a situation where the situation may get worse because they may not have access to their farms? It's very worrying because it's the planting season and farmers should be working in their fields, planting and taking care of their crops and they cannot do it anymore. So we foresee problem for the next cropping season and we have to support those people who fled without anything. So the priority for WFP is to provide assistance to those who are newly displaced, not only in Darfur but in all South Sudan. We need money to do this. We need $397 million altogether for the whole 2013 year. And so far, we still need two out of this almost $400 million. We still need $270 million urgently. And this money will allow us to provide urgent assistance to those newly displaced. It's not only in the Darfur region where there is displacement. Along the border with the South Sudan, there is some displacement. Are you able to reach those people who are displaced on the border areas? 
We are trying to provide food assistance in the area to which we have access, in the other part of the country, in the conflict-affected states of Blue Nile, South Cordofan, where more than 100,000 people have also been displaced due to new violence. So WFP is scaling up its operation, and as I said, it's the largest and most complex operation for the World Food Programme. World Food Programme spokesperson Elizabeth Byers talking to UN Radio's Patrick Maigua. Reports say nearly 10% of Malawi's 13 million people face hunger due to low yields of the staple crop maize, prolonged dry spells and flooding. A grouping of several government departments, the United Nations, embassies and humanitarian agencies say those affected will need assistance for a period of between two to five months. The shortages will affect poor households in 21 districts of the country. Food shortage in this impoverished country is often caused by drought and economic difficulties. Koko Ushiyama, country director of the World Food Program in Malawi, elaborates. Generally, in the region, southern Africa is characterized as a silent emergency. And basically, we're also seeing that in the southern African region, food insecurity is a greater concern this year. That's uh, involving many other countries in this region. Due to various issues linked to erratic rainfall or flooding, some parts of southern Africa with conflict, but also with um, locust, army worms, even dry skulls. In some of the countries, uh, they're seeing floods and drought at the same areas. So that's the regional context where this year we're seeing a higher level of food insecurity. Malawi, obviously one of the southern African countries, southern countries, 10% or so, or 1.5 million, because I think the population is growing. About 1.5 million was seen as impacted, food insecure. But I think what's interesting to note is that this is as of June. So a few months before the traditional lean season, which starts from October, what we're expecting is that we're going to do another round with the government and other partners of assessment in October to get an even more updated picture of food insecurity. Now, let's talk about the efforts then that will be taken to assist these people that will be affected. Obviously, there has been programs by the World Food Program and other agencies. Now, what's going to be done going forward? Well, we're also seeing that given that this is the second year of um, a pretty large number of affected people, Last year was about up to 2 million people affected. This year, already before the lean season, it's about 1.5 million people. We really, I think, are are getting ready for the various response mechanisms. Obviously, the short-term measures are more of a scaling up of humanitarian assistance. And this, we need to start preparing now. And my appeal is that the donor support is there. With that donor support, we can scale up for the more shorter-term response. Also, scaling up of other existing government and partner social safety net, social protection programs. And throughout, I think, as we look ahead, we really have to look at the resilience building component of food insecurity. The medium to longer term measures, which we already have, but I think 
we can further consolidate together again with our partners is having more climate change adaptation programs. It's already happening, but have even more of a focus of addressing the whole value chain of food insecurity, not just at the production level, but also at the post-harvest management level, infrastructure, storage, communication, investments. There's ongoing talks, but I think we can do even more together on the strategic green reserve issues. So there's a whole host of work that's starting. We need the support from our donors. Um, we've seen uh, subsidy programs working in other states, and what we've learned is that the late President Bingu Wamutarika implemented a subsidy program giving poor villagers access to fertilizers and inputs. How successful has that been in Malawi? It's definitely a topical issue that many of our partners are discussing. We don't necessarily directly deal with the fertilizer, but what we're hearing amongst our experts and our colleagues is that, yes, there has been impact, a positive impact, as you see the production increases through agricultural subsidy programs. It has definitely, I think, shown impact. But as also others are saying, there are areas that could could be further improvements. So I'm yet to follow the ongoing debate. It's something that is very linked. Uh, But as I also said earlier, it's not just about increasing production for us in terms of food security. Production increase is one component of having a food secure population, but it's also about access that food, but also the whole consumption, consuming the food um, with nutritious components and also the health and sanitation. It's one aspect of food security and that we're very much following it with interest. That was Koko Ushiyama, Country Director of the World Food Program in Malawi, on the line from the city of Blantyre, talking to Selina Dubong. Channel Africa and Topcom Media brings you the 10th anniversary of the Top Women Awards. As part of Women's Month celebrations, these awards recognize organizations that empower women in business and government across the African continent. Channel Africa as a broadcast partner is sponsoring the African SMME Award to the Best Performing Enterprise. The award ceremony is taking place on the 2nd of August 2013 at the Sentinel Convention Center in Johannesburg, South Africa. Stay tuned as we will be speaking to some of the successful women entrants. For more information, visit the Channel Africa website on www.channelafrica.org. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The South African Security Forces Union, SASFU, says it is shocked by the employment of a Congolese national into the ranks of the SANDF to serve in the Navy. SASFU's President Begim Mvovo says the employment is against the law. Mvovo says it is also against the backdrop of the high unemployment rate amongst the South African youth. Freddie Sipeng reports. Mvovo says the employment of foreigners into the SANDF is a threat to national security as this has a potential to allow infiltrating foreigners to advance into the leadership of the SANDF and might even lead to a coup d'etat against the democratically elected government of South Africa. He called for the commander-in-chief and the cabinet to take a serious look at the matter. Mr. Mutambala Kika has been 
employed in the South African Navy. When you then get a situation where foreign nationals are then given an opportunity better than South Africans, it becomes a problem. It's also a threat to national security because the Defence Force is involved in some missions outside, especially in Africa where there's been coups. Vovo says most of the youth in the country are unemployed and it is unfair for the SANDF to employ people from outside the country inside their ranks. He says something serious has to be done regarding this issue. We've had situations where the youth of our country struggles to get that employment and also to serve their country as patriots because of the numbers that the Defence Force can take. And we've also been calling the government, requesting the government to spend at least 2% of the GDP in the Defence Force with the hope that we can be able to employ more people to serve in the Defence Force and to give the skills to that youth. Some of the youth we've trained and has been released because there are no posts in the Defence Force. The South African National Defence Force has rejected the claim that a foreign national was intentionally recruited and that allegations that he was already in the submarine flotilla were unfounded and incorrect. They say they are in the process of withdrawing the candidate. They say while the SANDF chooses not to be drawn into such full statements, it must be stated that it is a voluntary organization which all South African citizens between the ages of 18 and 24 years are eligible to join. Freddy Sepeng, Pretoria. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. A judge in London will decide later today whether Shrian Dewani should be extradited to South Africa. Dewani stands accused of hiring contract killers to murder his wife Annie while they were there on their honeymoon in 2010. Our UK correspondent Natalie Fury has more. Britain's top magistrate has had 20 days to deliberate the evidence presented to him during a four-day hearing. Today he will announce his decision on whether the time has come to extradite Shrian Dewani. The judge will base his decision on whether he thinks extradition would be unjust or oppressive. The protracted legal battle has lasted over two years, even though the British Home Secretary signed an extradition order over a year and a half ago. But with Dewani suffering from depression and post-traumatic stress disorder, the case has repeatedly been adjourned because of his ill health. During the recent hearings, the South African government made the unusual assurance that Dewani would not be detained in prison pending trial. Instead, he will be sent to a psychiatric hospital where he will receive treatment for his mental health condition. But Dewani's defence says extradition now would be unjust and oppressive. They have asked for proceedings to be postponed for six months to see if his condition improves. If the judge decides in favour of extradition, Dewani's defence is likely to appeal. The case could then go to the High Court. If the case is dismissed there, then his defence could apply for the European Court of Human Rights to accept the case. If these avenues of appeal fail, then it looks like Dewani will have no choice but to return to South Africa. Annie's relatives, the Hindutra family, want him to return and answer questions about her murder. 
That report by Natalie Fury in London. We now cross over to Wisani Makubele for our headlines. Thank you, Lulu. In your headlines, Zimbabwe's Electoral Commission says it's happy with preparations for the upcoming general elections on the 31st of July. Pressure is mounting on Egypt's new leaders to release Mohamed Morsi from detention and Britain's top magistrate to decide today whether Shurian Diwani should be extradited to South Africa. A full bulletin at 9 Central African time. Thank you, Wisani. Transplant athletes from across the globe are gearing themselves up for the 19th World Transplant Games, which will kick off in South Africa's coastal city of Durban this Thursday. The event aims to demonstrate the physical success of transplant surgery and the ability of transplant recipients to lead healthy, normal lives. In South Africa, close to 4,000 people are waiting for organs at the moment. To elaborate further on issues around its medical process, here's Samantha Falschek. Executive Director of the Organ Donor Foundation, South Africa. There are about 4,000 people, adults and children, awaiting organ transplants in South Africa. There is a critical shortage of organ donors. Less than 600 transplants took place last year. Many patients can be kept on dialysis treatment, for example, but the patients that are requiring other solid organs like hearts or lungs or pancreas transplants Many of them die waiting because there just are not enough organ donors. Apart from cultural and religious objections, what other issues contribute to this critical shortage of organs? I think firstly there's a lack of education around the subject of organ donation. So a lot of people don't know still that you can be an organ donor. And then there are a lot of misconceptions and fears around the subject. You know, many people believe that your body will be disfigured, that there's a cost to be an organ donor, and there's a cost to your family at the time of your death, that maybe the doctors won't try to save your life if they know you're an organ donor. So there are various misconceptions, and these need to be addressed. Samantha, you spoke about misconceptions about organ donation. How do you normally deal with such issues so as to ensure that they don't prevent people from signing up as donors? Well, what we do is we do one-on-one education. So we do many things from media interviews to visiting schools and doing talks at schools, at companies. We have wellness days promoted. We visit shopping centers. We find that the best way to promote it is to do one-on-one training, but we also do have offer a toll-free line service and a website where people can find out more information about organ donation. Let's now come to the minimum requirements of being an organ donor. What kind of tests will one have to undergo? You have to do nothing now while you're still alive. All you need to do is sign up as an organ donor. We send you an information pack in the post, which contains an organ donor card and stickers for your ID and your driver's license. And then the most important thing is to discuss the decision with your family because your family needs to consent at the time of your death. Other than that, you do not go for any tests now while you're still alive. All of those tests are done at the time of your death. 
to determine which organs can be used. So it's as simple as that. And generally, are there enough discussions taking place at the moment about the importance of creating public awareness and knowledge in as far as donating an organ is concerned? Look, we are the organization that has to create awareness around the subject. We have a lot of champions of our cause. We call them Friends of the Organ Donor Foundation. These are individuals or companies that take on the initiative and promote it on our behalf. There's loads of recipients that are very involved in promoting organ donor awareness, patients awaiting transplants and their families. They promote it on our behalf. So we as an organization, we provide promotional material to members of the public or anyone wanting to promote it on our behalf and provide education on the subject. They can then in turn, members of the public go out, sort of improve the footprint of the Organ Donor Foundation and create a lot of awareness around the subject. Now, this World Transplant Games that will be hosted in Durban. How important are such events? We have two events organized with the World Transplant Games Office and the Etoquini Municipality. On Sunday, the 28th of July, we have a celebratory Save Seven Lives walk where the participants from all over the world are invited to come and take part as well as the public and it's free to 10 o'clock in the morning and a fun walk for the family. We also have another event arranged with the World Transplant Games, an organ donor tribute ceremony, so a tribute or a ceremony that pays tribute to organ donors and their families. We invite organ donor families from Durban as well as all the participants taking part in the World Transplant Games will be present and we really just, it's religious leaders, it's an interfaith service and will be present. Myself and my colleague Eurster will be present with our Durban project manager to take part in all the activities, the opening ceremony of the World Transplant Games. So we're very excited about it. We think that it will increase organ donation or the education or the awareness around organ donation greatly in that region and in South Africa. That was Samantha Falschenk, Executive Director of the Organ Donor Foundation South Africa, speaking to Channel Africa's Elizabeth Mapari. A new study shows that teenagers between the ages of 13 and 18 in South Africa's Gauteng province are having unprotected sex. The study by the Social Development Department surveyed more than 500 teenagers who confessed to not using condoms, preferring unprotected sex. Mulebukheng Sibidi has more. The research commissioned by the Gauteng Social Development Department was conducted with more than 500 teenagers between the ages of 13 and 18 years old who revealed that teenagers prefer unprotected sex. In the study, many teenagers have confessed that they do not use condoms. This teenager says they are aware of the dangers of HIV, sexually transmitted diseases, as well as teenage pregnancies, but the temptation is always greater than the ability to reason responsibly. Well, um, the main reason why there's so much unprotected sex is because of the fact that latex can get really uncomfortable. And certain things just don't go through my mind. Nothing is going through your mind at that point in time. All you're thinking about, you just want to do it, man. That's all you want to do. You want to do it. All that happens is that your mind goes blank. You're not thinking about what's going to happen tomorrow. You're just thinking about the here and the now. And you're anticipating the fun that comes with, you know, having sex. Teenagers say while they may have options to prevent unwanted pregnancies through contraceptives and sometimes the emergency contraceptive famously known as the morning of the pill when it comes to hiv and sexually transmitted diseases it is just a gambling game so if it's someone that i obviously don't know yes the sort of sexually transmitted diseases and hiv and pregnancy that's the first thing that goes through my mind sexually transmitted diseases 
Gauteng Social Development MEC Nandi Mayatula Koza says this is a very disturbing trend. Mayatula Koza says many teenagers fall pregnant partly because of lack of resources and dire social conditions. One of the findings was that you know some of our teenagers from the age of 13 to 18 years uh, actually engage on unprotected sex, that in fact they prefer unprotected sex. I was shocked. I was very shocked because, I mean, if our children age 13 to 18 are engaged on unprotected sex, it means that they are prone to sexually transmitted infections. It means that they are prone to HIV, it means that they are prone to unwanted pregnancy, to teenage pregnancy. And what about their education? Mayatula Koza says the small-scale survey has sparked an urgent need to increase the scope of research in the aim of including many teenagers in the survey for a better understanding of the extent of the situation instead of labeling most Gauteng teenagers as irresponsible. The National Department of Social Development has now commissioned the study in Limpopo, the Eastern Cape, Mpumalanga and KwaZulu-Natal. Mayatula Koza says more aggressive and creative ways need to be developed in order to change the mentality of the teenagers represented in the study. Uh, talking about sex must not be taboo. We must talk about teenage pregnancy and the, the difficulties, the challenges related to that. And so parental guidance is very, very important. Let's not also shy away from family pl- if our boys and girls are already involved, we should do not promote, by the way. But if already they are involved, let them go to the clinics and, uh, and be assisted. Families be really that are suffering from poverty, unemployment, etc. Let them talk to government, let them talk to the private sector, and let them form those cooperatives, etc. So that their children do not feel that they come from poor families and therefore they must get economic benefits, money from sugar daddies, sugar mummies. The study also found that cultural perceptions and practices including lack of parental guidance and girls wanting to prove their womanhood in the hopes of gaining respect in their relationships and the community contributes to teenage pregnancy. But despite such challenges, statistics have shown a decrease in teenage pregnancies in Gauteng. The 2012 annual school survey has shown a 20% decrease in the pregnancy rate in Gauteng from the 2009 annual school survey, which according to MEC Mayatula Koza suggests that teenagers are aware of their options when faced with unwanted pregnancy. That report by Mulebucheng Sibidi in Johannesburg. An exciting project teaching members of communities in South Africa's Cradle of Humankind World Heritage Site in Johannesburg how to cast fossils will be launched on Friday. The Marapu Stones and Bones Casting Project will play a key role in the protection, preservation and promotion of the World Heritage Site. This fossil casting program is the first of its kind and will give the public the opportunity to now own a replica of an original fossil discovered in the area which has produced over one-third of the world's hominid fossils. More from Dr. Bonita de Klerk of Wits University. The Marapo Stones and Bones project is actually an outreach initiative in the Cradle of Humankind. It's a joint initiative between Wits University and the Cradle of Humankind World Heritage Site Management Authority. And what we aim to do is actually create a project that would benefit the local communities. The scientists working in the area have long been using casting techniques to make replicas of fossils for research, and we thought that this would be a great way of actually taking the skill out into the local community so that they can actually take ownership of sort of the fossil finds then and they will help preserve the heritage of this area.
Who stands to benefit from this project? The communities themselves, the selected participants who will help us run it, we're hoping that the communities will start benefiting from the sales of these casts out in the cradle. But then also the public will benefit because then they'll have access to replicas of these great fossil finds. And this really is a way of ensuring access to education materials and a way forward for the science of paleoanthropology in South Africa. And in terms of this project itself, what actually led you to start this initiative? Because it's quite interesting. The area itself is actually it's quite unique in that so many amazing fossil discoveries pertaining to human evolution has actually been made right in the cradle. And people have been studying this area for you know the past 100 years. And it was with the discovery of the Malapa fossils of Australopithecus sediba, 2010, we announced that new species, Professor Lieberger here at the ESI. One of the things that he did was he ensured that all the fossils that were discovered were cast. So we made copies of them to ensure that if anything happens to the original, you have a copy. But what this did is it also allowed us to share these copies with other universities and other museums around the world. And thus it made it open access. And the techniques of casting and molding were historically always only used in universities by the technicians here. And it was an outreach initiative that he came up with. He thought, let's actually give back to the communities by teaching them some of the skills that are learnt right in the cradle of humankind. So one of the things that's really great is that we're actually exposing them to the science of paleoanthropology that is really something that dominates in the cradle and it's a science that they were really not exposed to at all. So they then become a part of what's happening in the cradle. Dr. De Klerk, that was actually my next question. Are these trainees qualified in this field? Well, they've done intensive training in casting techniques. So they were actually trained by our casting technicians here from Wits University. So they do now have the skills to mold and cast the replicas out in the cradle. And what we are looking to do in the future is actually get them proper qualifications in this casting so that they'll get their certificates that go with it. How long will this project be taking place for? This project has actually been running since the beginning of the year and we're hoping that it will grow and become self-sustaining in the future. That through this project they will then be able to make more casts and actually sustain the project going forward. That was Dr. Bonita de Klerk, Operations Manager for the Malapa Project at the Evolutionary Studies Institute at the Johannesburg-based University of the Witwatersrand, talking to Tutong Gobeni. We now cross over to Tabisolohoku for our economics update. Wage negotiations in South Africa's gold mining industry are continuing this morning between the Chamber of Mines and Unions. Last week, the Chamber of Mines proposed a 4% salary hike for workers in the gold sector. Unions have demanded salary increases of up to 100%, depending on seniority. Employers say their proposed wage increases based on the declining gold price, spiraling costs and falling productivity. The industry's lead negotiator, Elise Stradom. 
Unproved Warfare Solidarity and uh, the NUM are meeting again today. The question is whether or not, you know, the Chamber of Mines can improve on its offer that it made last week. The offer we made last week was uh, an open wage offer of 4% and also a 4% increase on the allowances. South Africa's National Union of Mine Workers, Lesiba Sushoka, says members have rejected the 4% offer and hope the Chamber of Mines will come up with a better one. As a union, we remain steadfast on our demand that the entry level, in fact, the startup salary for surface workers, must be increased to 7,000 rand a month uh, on basic wages and to 8,000 rand a month for uh, underground workers. We have indicated to the chamber and will indicate as well today that our members have generally rejected the 4% offer that was placed on the table the last time. African entrepreneurs have urged their respective governments to create conducive environments for them to do business in their countries. This came out at the Forbes Africa Forum, which was held in Congo, Brazzaville yesterday. The meeting was attended by several African leaders, including South African President Jacob Zuma, his Ghanaian counterpart Dramani Mahama, Bles Kompaure of Burkina Faso, and other presidents, as well as former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan, Nigerian banker and businessman Tony Elumelu, says good policies will unlock Africa's potential. For Africa, infrastructure deficiency that we have can be addressed to a large extent by putting in place the right policies, the right regulatory regime, and capital will find its way into Africa. Meanwhile, South African President Jacob Zuma says that the African middle class should help their respective governments to address challenges facing the continent. He was speaking at the end of the Forbes African Forum, which was held in Congo, Brazzaville, yesterday. It is important to note Africa has entered an era of progress, hope and opportunity. However, despite the continent's positive economic outlook, it is still confronted by fluctuating commodity prices, rising inequality and youth unemployment. The African middle class should be a key player. South Sudan will shut down production at a clutch of oil blocks in Unity State from tomorrow as it closes all wells at the insistence of Sudan in a row over alleged rebel support. Last week, the country said it had started shutting its output after Sudan said it would close two cross-border oil pipelines within 60 days unless South Sudan gave up support for Sudanese rebels. Juba denies backing the rebels. Khomoto Mupulane has more.
Oil Minister Stephen Diudau has told reporters that engineers had so far started closing walls only to the country's main Palak fields in Blocks 3 and 7. Blocks 1, 2, 4 and 5 shutdown will start on Thursday. South Sudan only resumed oil production in April after turning off wells pumping around 300,000 barrels per day in January 2012 when both sides failed to agree on pipeline fees. The oil exports need to go through Sudan's Red Sea terminal in the absence of export facilities in the south which seceded from Sudan in 2011 under a peace deal ending a civil war. The shutdown affects all sales of China National Petroleum Corporation, Malaysia's Petronas and India's ONGC Vidush which runs the oil fields in South Sudan together with the government. The U.S. dollar trades at 9.78 South African rand, 65 British pounds, 75 euro, 8.38 Botswana pulas, 5.44 Zambian guachas, platinum $1,441, gold $1,339 an ounce, brand crude $109.15 a barrel. Economics update. Thank you, Tabiso. South Africa's first democratically elected president and Nobel Peace Prize winner Nelson Mandela last week marked his 95th birthday and in honor of Madiba as he is affectionately known by his clan name, the month of July is still marked as Mandela Month in South Africa. If you want to tell us how Nelson Mandela has touched or moved you or how you will always remember him, please make use of the opportunity and call in on the following number and leave your remarks. Dial plus two seven one two three nine five zero five one zero and press one for English. Remember to keep your remarks short. We now cross over to Figile Lingwati for our sporting update. In our sports update this hour, starting off with the cricket news, Sri Lanka have beaten the Proteas by 17 runs, according to the Duckworth-Lewis method, and have taken a 2-0 lead in the five-match series after rain put pay to the Proteas' run chase in the second ODI in Colombo last night. South Africa set a revised target of 176 from 29 overs, where 104 for 5 in 21 overs, when a heavy downpour at the Prima Dasa Stadium forced the match to be called off. With 121 for 5 being the pass score at that stage. The Proteas lost by 17 runs to suffer their second defeat in the series followed by the 180-run loss in the first match last Saturday. The hosts elected to bet first and set the South Africans a target of 176 from 29 overs under the Duckworth-Lewis method. The Proteas suffered a major setback even before they could start their run chase as Amla injured his knee while fielding. In his absence, Robin Peterson was pushed up the order. Peterson perished in the opening over for three. The Proteas slammed to 104 for five after 21 overs when Brain returned for a third time with the tourists 17 runs short of a reverse victory target of 121. According to the team doctor, Dr. Mohamed Masaji Hashim Amla, 
jarred his left knee into the ground while fielding, after which he reported discomfort and pelvic and groin region. And in athletics, athletics Kenya president Isaiah Kiblagat says they have withdrawn world silver medalist Silas Kiblagat and three other runners from this week's Diamond League meeting in London, fearing they could be burned out before next month's athletics world championships in Moscow. Kiblagat says they shall not allow the athletes they selected for the world championships to run in any other Diamond League races until after Moscow. He says their athletes should learn from Russian athletes who have not featured in the Diamond League meetings because they want to perform well at home. And Kenya have selected 42 athletes for the World Championships, which run from August the 10th to the 18th. And uh, finally, with uh, rugby news, the South African rugby outfit Bulls assistant coach Victor Metfield says Loftus Firstfeld is the Bulls' house and it's time to make it count. The Bulls are wary of the Brumbies and they know all too well what to expect from former book coach Jake White who will be chasing glory at the hallowed stadium this weekend. Medfield says perhaps it is the folklore that the Bulls haven't lost at Loftus this year and the imposing factor that the stadium was voted as the most hostile by Australian players a few years back has made so many people so confident that they will win on Saturday. That's a sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour. The AU election observers begin work in Zimbabwe and fighting in Sudan's Darfur region displaces thousands of people. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today from myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzora Magaza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team. Thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Flavor with Noa Baby.
money. I got them plenty, plenty, plenty. Looking for sexy, sexy, sexy. I want some photo, 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 photo. She can't get on, get on, get on, get on. Waka, waka, baby. Ururu, baby. Kona, kona, baby. And I go tell my mama. And I go tell my papa. And I go tell him say, you be waka, waka, baby. Chuku Shower, I wish I, 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 I